Welcome back to another episode of the Picable Radio. My name is Marcel Van Ho from the Visual Friends. So before we start in today's episode, I want to read something out. Here we go. So Fiona McUrchin, I hope I pronounce her name right, wrote the following. She's group manager, organization development at Epworth Healthcare, and she wrote the following. I sent one of my team on a Picablo course recently. I hadn't heard of it before. Thanks to Naked Ambition for their recommendation. And by that, Naked Ambition, thank you very much for recommending us. But it's a German group teaching everyday people to be gun facilitators by harnessing visualization and collaboration techniques. To say I was pleased with his learning would be the understatement of 2018. This is what he can do now. And underneath there's a very nice celebration piece, clean line, clear colors, it looks clean, it looks good. Would strongly recommend to those in your team that love facilitation. It's already brought so much more life and animation to our team and beyond AppWords. I'm not sure about the animation part, because it's not moving yet, but it's really, really nice. Thanks Fiona about those kind words. And of course, this helped us to get the word out to inspire more people to be visual facilitators and to change the world because engaging with visuals with each other is just better. All right. If you want to learn that too, there are four trainings left before the end of the year. We have two trainings on the same day, on the 22nd of November in Wellington and in Melbourne. Both have a couple of seats left. And then we have December. December, we only have a training in Brisbane and one in Sydney. In Brisbane, it's on the 13th of December and in Sydney on the 17th. So hop over on our website, visualfriends.com. And if you are listening from somewhere else around the globe, please hop over on bicablo.com. This is B-I-K-A-B-L-O.com. And there you can book the trainings from other trainers around the globe. And with that, we hop over to today's episode with Dean Myers from New York. Do you remember the time when Apple started? Or maybe have you seen the movie Pirates of Silicon Valley? Until I met Dean, I never met a person who worked at Apple at that time when the first Macintosh was released. And with that, the first graphical user interface was released to the world. Dean is quite keen on teaching people how to use things. And with the first graphical user interface, he knew that he has to pass it on how to use it. And I think he was one of the first trainers on the planet for teaching how to use a graphical user interface. However, what really struck me with Dean is his wide range of professional skills. You might know that we all learn by using different modalities. Some people prefer to access new information by reading or learn by writing it down. Others need to hear it or visualize ideas. Different people, again, like to touch things and have a quick understanding when doing something with their hands. Through the years, we find our preferred way of learning and develop it at our core skill. Dean is different here. Until I met Dean, I hadn't met a person who has such a high experience in all those modalities. He's not only a visual problem solver and design thinker, he has also an education as an opera singer and music composer. Not enough, he believes in the power of deep thinking with your hands and therefore is a facilitator for Lego series play. Here, you use Lego bricks to coach people by building something with their hands. I'm very pleased to introduce to you Dean Myers from New York. Welcome to another episode of the Picable Radio today with Dean Myers. Dean, welcome to the show. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Dean, if I'm right, you live in New York. We just had recently Jill Greenbaum. Uh, you might know her probably because you both work for the IFAP, if I'm right. Exactly, yes. She lives somewhere on the countryside. Where do you live in New York? I live actually in Manhattan. That's great. Right in New York City. So what's your view out of the window? Um, actually, I have a side street in Manhattan, uh -huh. although I live, on, um, I live on a major avenue, and I'm a few blocks from Central Park. Oh my God, that's beautiful. That's cool. Yes. Yeah, the park is, is... I was living in Melbourne next to Fitzroy Garden in East Melbourne, and it's like walking through the park. I always said, this is my garden. Those gardeners, they take care of it because it's too much work. 
but it's basically my garden. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Awesome to have you on the show. I'm absolutely pleased to that you take the time and uh, that we talk a bit about your work. Like before we start, I think it's always good to learn a bit about who you are and when your work started. And we, uh, when I read through, one thing I, that that pointed to me was like you were working as a sales representative for Apple at when Macintosh was launched in 1984. That means like you have worked with Steve Jobs or at least met him a couple of times probably. Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to that time. Like start early and tell us a bit of how you started your career and, and what were the steps, how you basically from the beginning of your career into like what you do today as the visual problem solver and design thinker. Sure. I would like to um, think of my career as having started. Um, I was living uh, actually in Puerto Rico, in San Juan, Puerto Rico. And I was first working for a, um, a public relations person. And then I moved into work to do marketing in a newspaper, a weekly business newspaper in Puerto Rico. And I uh, was very interested in technology Uh, the way it was being applied, uh, both to marketing and the actual production of the graphics and the visuals within the newspaper. I do have training in graphic design and art, fine art. And I have another thread in my professional career, my other professional career in, in music as well. But in any case, I became fascinated with the use of the personal computer to be able to do some of the marketing tasks and taught myself programming and so on and so forth. This is very early, and I was quite young. And I wound up working first for the local uh, sales representative for Apple Computer. And then I went to work directly for Apple Computer to represent the company for uh, the Caribbean region, and then I extended into uh, Central America and uh, uh, South America for a little while. So... What was amazing was to be there at the time of the launch of the Macintosh because it was the introduction of the what we call the graphic user interface. In other words, the mouse and all of the iconography and the beautiful screen where you see all of these pictures representing things and you roll around uh, onto the screen to move things around and throw things out in a trash bucket. All of that happened right at that time and I was there and it was just absolutely amazing. So the other side of it that was amazing was to be able to apply all of this visual thinking to be able to teach people how to use the interface. So I would do large scale introductory demonstrations and go into schools and teach teachers how to use this device, this new device. So It was a, a great time for me, and, and I, I consider that as really the start of being a visual problem solver, <laughs> more than being a, a marketing person or a, not just a trainer or an instructor or, or even just being a representative for the company. At this time, like when, when you read about Steve Jobs or when you hear about it, was it this, this crazy guy? Was, he so, was it very stressful, like you see in, in movies, or was it a more fun time? Well, you have to understand, from my point of view, I was in my, my late 20s, and Steve Jobs is, was only six months older than me. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> so we were, you know, this was about being very rebellious and independent and forward-thinking and outspoken and openly creative. So that whole way of, of working and thinking, you know, we, we kind of expect that. Uh, from startups, but it was very natural to sort of work in that, I don't want to say it's just high pressure, but just it was, it was just an exciting kind of thing because it was a great feeling like we had a mission. And Steve was extremely openly passionate, and that was very infectious. I think everybody to work at Apple or to work for Apple, um, that kind of infectious passion um, was what made you want to stay and And, and do that. Mm -hmm. I, if I'm right, Steve had a, had an, a degree or some way of uh, into typography. And right now you see a lot of uh, trainings and things around lettering. Was it something that you started early as well? It's like user interfaces is, is one thing, but 
if I'm right, the one the Mac was one of the first computers who could really print well. That's why it had this uptake in in, in printing and graphic design area. Well, uh, here's here's the funny thing, and I I know it's I believe it's in the biography, the big biography of Steve Jobs. There were famous times when Steve would make these big presentations, and the equipment would fail. And uh, the first one uh, was at the, as I say, this gigantic sales conference, and all of the sales representatives from around the world were sitting there, and he'd wheeled out the Macintosh, and it said, hello, you know, hello, world, or whatever, and we all screamed and yelled. And then he pulled out this laser printer, and he could not get the laser printer to work. (laughs) So... (laughs) You know, we were we were disappointed, but we were intrigued. And again, coming from a a background where I was already doing layout and, you know, commercial layout and design work for a newspaper and I was doing the marketing, uh, marketing materials and advertising to have a, a device that could even crudely because it was still low, lower resolution from what we expect now. But to have a device that was not a dot matrix printer with that crude lettering styles and things like that, but to have more facility, to have a painting and a drawing program. I mean, the very first, one of the very first three programs that came out with the Macintosh was was a painting hmm. program, even though you were doing it with the mouse, which is very crude. And uh, most ironically, I, uh, as much as I use tablets and even, you know, my phone with a stylus, I will still actually do some work in Photoshop and Illustrator with the mouse. <laughs> so you adapt to the tool, but the very fact that the tool itself was already meant to facilitate or extend your capability as a, uh, I'll say, as a visual thinker, that was a very important thing to Steve. And because this was all new, you started teaching and passing this on, right? If I'm yes, uh, yeah. and, and again, we had no we had no classes. They they gave us the devices and they said, figure out how to train people to use a mouse. Mm. Okay, fine. So I had to come up with all of these ideas, like rolling around the mouse on the on the table is like uh, the way you would because people say, well, what happens if I roll the mouse off the edge of the table? So well, you just lift it up and move the ball inside will move. It's it's like a hairbrush. Yeah. You know, you yeah. keep lifting the hairbrush and you keep brushing your hair. It's the same. You just lift the mouse. And so as I say, this, this kind of thinking yeah. was in, inculcated in, in, in my work effort. And again, I had to pass that along. How do you apply visual thinking? How do you do that kind of stuff? And how do you make <laughs> how do you make it visual? Because you were so close to the tools and they were just invented, you you probably one of the first trainers for graphic design on a computer around the globe, right? You know, it's an interesting way of putting it that I because I didn't think of it as graphic design per se. I really just thought of I guess I didn't think of it in that restricted a way. Uh-huh. I really just thought about how do you apply using this ability to draw or paint uh, or extend what you would do with a pencil on a on a screen. And so, yes, uh, while I didn't necessarily do a lot of very formal graphic design coursework uh, per se, I certainly had to work with an awful lot of people who were moving into commercial design. And then to jump forward into my career, I wound up working, running graphic departments in advertising agencies mm-hmm. and setting setting up these departments because they were now moving away from all the manual processes and moving into using digital equipment, using mostly Macintoshes, but also using, even moving into doing um, animation. Mm-hmm. And I was working in the pharmaceutical industry, so of course we're talking about animations and drawings that are highly technical because they represent either chemical formulas or products, you know, I hate to say it, but pills and lotions and potions and whatnot. But you have, you know, you have technical drawing going on and now you're able to use these devices that you would buy over the counter from the store and use it to do this really high quality highly technically demanding artwork so it was very another exciting time and now i'm I'm moving forward into into what i was doing in the 90s so with with the 90s somewhere there the internet came how then had this Uh, graphic design work that you were doing for agencies, probably for print at the time, then changed into uh, the internet time. That's right. So um, 
again, I was working in the pharmaceutical uh, industry, communi communication in the pharmaceutical industry, and the FDA had uh, permitted – the first thing that happened that shifted is that the FDA permitted the advertising of uh, pharmaceutical prescription medications uh, on uh, television. So now I was moving beyond print and starting to work and to do motion graphics, television advertising for medications. So once again, we were shifting. We were shifting out of being uh, working in that kind of you know visual world of a flat you know flat image, single image. Now we're going into doing animation and video and motion. And um, how do you tell stories? How do you tell visual stories that way? And then in 1995, with the internet, you know, becoming really available, once again, it was permitted to be able to use the internet for informational and advertising purposes for, again, the pharmaceutical industry. So there I was, and I, in my office, we put a server, <laughs> put, a, put a web server on the desk behind me and um, started to put up websites for um, medical professionals to get information for the general public to start to get information about prescription medications for um, we were building uh, we were building networks for doctors to be able to um, uh, communicate uh, with each other to share information and research information so again uh, suddenly moving into yet another application of visuals to communication and thinking about the consequences of that, of course, as well, was a very, a very interesting thing and a big deal. And there was there were no schools. There were no degrees in HTML. There were no I mean, none of that was around. Anybody who worked in that field, we were inventing as we went along. That's now the first point where, where my career touches like what you did. Okay. Like my, my parents had a travel agency and I was interested in HTML and built the first website. For them, that was my first one. And then, of course, it was during the first IT bubble, 97 to 2001, roughly. Mm -hmm. Then more and more of those, oh, can you have another website? Can you do that? Yeah, my son can do that. So it was like this time where everyone wanted a, a website for whatever reason ever. And then I was hosting them on a PC in a corner somewhere and hasn't had an uplink similar to you or what was it? Right. <laughs> but I, I try to make the link like for me, it, um, the connection to visual thinking was much later when I was a trainer for coaching and, and project management in a way or in the IT field like when I became an agile coach. For you, it was all from the beginning in a DNA, like you you had this visual background all the way to, through your work then as a web developer. And I wonder, like, how didn't you, like, shift it into handcrafted drawings that you that you use live drawing or graphic recording or anything of this in a, in, in a meeting setup or in a workshops? Like, how was this shift then? Oh, that that's the perfect question, because I was about to explain that on the one side, I would say that I was applying visual thinking based on what I was taught to be a, as a graphic artist producing commercial artwork. And again, you know, my childhood, I was painting and drawing in a quote unquote fine arts way mm -hmm. as a way of doing self-expression and so on and so forth. And so shifting to the other side of it. Um, at the, because I was having to stand in meetings and hold conversations about, well, how are we going to work out this marketing program and how are we going to bring this together and how are we going to do that? And I would stand in front of the room and I would, I would have to grab the whiteboard marker and say, wait a minute, I, I can't, I have to see this. I have to see this. Does it look like, and I might draw a box, does it look like this and then another box connects to that and I would draw a line and then that leads to this and draw an arrow and another box and does it branch down to something like that? So I was essentially resorting to diagramming and applying other things like running a fast bar chart. I just draw it very quickly. You know, what's going to be the most important thing? And I would say, what's going to rise to the top? And so I would 
draw an icon or, you know, in this very crude way, I was already starting to graphically facilitate without knowing that there was a a school of thinking growing up on how to how to actually, you know, in a formal way, graphically facilitate. So I was doing that. And this was, again, back in the days of doing marketing, developing marketing programs and working on strategy work. So it was a very natural thing, as I say to me, because I just always had to have some way of thinking visually in my lexicon of communicating. And as I say, it was a natural process. And then I, much later on, I actually, as I say, found that there are templates and formats and schools of thought, you know, processes to actually graphically facilitate and graphically record these type of activities. And you all did this, like this whole visual design, the work in the, of those over the years to support The other side of your career, which is an opera singer, is this correct? Yes. This is yes, like amazing. Right. So it's like on the one side, this visual thinker, native, like standing in front of a whiteboard, like to make sense of a very complex topic and work on strategies. And that's basically paying a fine art as well, which is like the opera singer and composer side. Like, can you talk about that? Yeah, yes, I can. I can explain that at the same time. And I'll say from childhood of being both fascinated with being able to think and express myself and communicate uh, visually aside from using words. I also had a profound connection with music to do that. And I don't mean just vocal music. I mean, just all music. And, and then I moved into the desire to actually not just uh, create, not just listen to music or to uh, sing or play instruments, but to actually compose music. And so I started doing that also as a as a teenager. So here I was on the one side, you know, doing all this visual stuff. And then on the other side, being a, you know, being a musician, hoping for a career somehow to be a performer, uh, performer, composer. And as I say, I ran these dual tracks, the the visual side wound up, uh, I was able to find a way to turn that into producing more income than the than the and more stable income than the musical side but i've maintained all the tracks and i at a much smaller range i'm still an active professional musician as well as as being a visual problem solver and design thinker so both sides of uh that need to both be creative and to communicate they're both alive and well so what's the name of your band you play uh, <laughs> <laughs> we all want to know uh actually i i moved I moved most heavily into classical music and uh, theater uh, theater music composition. So I did my rock band days when I was a teenager. And then by the time I went to Puerto Rico, uh, when I was 22, I no longer did any any of any of that stuff. So it all became salsa. Well, there was there was salsa. And now, frankly, I'm into EDM. I'm really into EDM. <laughs> cool. So I may start I may start writing some EDM stuff. I don't know. I'm thinking about it really hard because I really like it. Cool. And you bring already like the the auditorial and the visual things together. And like there are other ways you can um, like learn as well, right? I never forget the TED talk from Sonny Brown, you know, like the four modalities of visual, auditorial, kinesthetic. And I forgot one. Okay. So uh, I know that you are a design thinker as well. And there you build stuff, you, you handcraft prototypes, you, you make things touchable, you build a product box, you put an antenna on top because that's the uplink to the internet or something out of out of some wire, yeah, random. So those those creative kinesthetic thinking things, how did they came into that mix? I'll sort of cut to the chase and tell you that I'm a certified Lego serious play facilitator as well. And I'm very proud of that because... Uh, and I think it's very important to talk about because that is a great facilitation methodology, which uses these bricks, the Lego bricks, to be able to not just do prototyping, which is, I think, the first thought that people go to. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, the methodology uh, combines uh, storytelling 
but creating embodied metaphors and a guided process. And that to me is just the greatest combination of using all of these different approaches to discover and bring out the unknown, which I think is what the most important thing about design thinking is about. And and, and therefore, design thinking in a way also has a a learning or a teaching component that's so special and important. So I think that beyond doing the prototyping, which once again, you know, just as I was explaining, mm-hmm. when I was first making up my own version of graphic facilitation, you know, just by standing and trying to do sort of diagrams and icons uh, on a whiteboard, moving into doing design thinking work, once again, you know, how do I apply that into into helping build strategies, not just physical prototypes, but how do we move how do we move so that we're prototyping in a metaphoric way, right? And how do we visualize? How do we make these things come into into a real world, especially things as complex as a system or not just a system, but the way that people interact with each other, which is a system that is in motion, right? Mm-hmm. How, how can we do all of that? And so prototyping in itself wasn't enough. I wanted to find better a better method to to do that. So that's that's why I moved into doing this kind of methodology. And that's I wanted to bring that out because I, I think anybody listening yeah. would be really yeah. interested in that. And I would like to stay at that uh, for a minute longer because like some people don't, might not know it. Like if I'm if I'm right you have a like a set of Lego bricks like everyone has this similar like everyone in a group has the same Lego bricks and you you have a step-by-step process of leading questions and something you build to answer those questions? Or can you guide us a bit through what how Lego series play works and, and, and that someone, um, because it's visual as well, it completely fits, right? Yeah. Exactly. This is what's so wonderful about it. It, it. it combines, you have the visual because the bricks, and it's visual plus 3D. So you have bricks and they have color, they have color, shape, Some are transparent. Uh, Some of them actually have functional capabilities within them. You have the bricks. And so you start with a set of bricks. And it's essentially a four-step process where the the facilitator poses a question or a challenge. um, Build something that represents something. Build something that represents your worst day at work. (laughs) <laughs> How's that? Yeah. So you you create anything. It's, it's just sort of this abstract clicking together of the bricks to form a an embodied metaphor of some kind, right? So the second step is to build. First step is the challenge. Second step is the build. Third step is the person who built that embodied metaphor now has to tell the story. Yeah. What's the story of the of this embodied metaphor? And then the uh, that fourth step is people's responding to it, where they would not necessarily make any challenges or take anything away from it, but rather gain shared understanding by saying, "What does? why did you choose these color bricks? Do they have a meaning to them? Is there a reason why this looks symmetrical? Those kinds of things. So here you are asking people to build with their hands and listen with their eyes. It's just an amazing process. And... As I say, I I love watching people now become visual thinkers on their own. In other words, if I'm standing in a room and I'm doing graphic recording or graphic facilitation, I have the trouble of I'm using my visual language more than theirs. And I'm interpreting based on my biases and my experiences and my knowledge where they are essentially now building their own visual metaphors and explaining the meaning very deeply. And, and that's why I say what's amazing is that all of a sudden these these hidden things come out, even to the people who've built them, them themselves, because they've been building, you know, been thinking with their hands, not with their not with their word based mm-hmm. <laughs> parts of their brains. So it's just an amazing facilitation technique and process. And I was only once part of, of a serious play where we um, the leading question was something around build your perfect team or your, your best team you could think of. And um, it was very interesting, like how different people uh, build. Like uh, one person builds something very solid, uh, very like you could almost fo- let it fall from the table and um, it would not break because it's like rock solid. 
um, shape, and the other one builds an antenna, and every could, every part could fall apart. And just in the shape, you say like, ah, this is this, and this is this uh, angle here, and this belongs here, and it was like complete different style, like how how people then talk and uh, what's important to them came out. Like it, it was really. I still know where I was sitting when I was playing that in Hamburg. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so pleased to hear that. And I'll bet you also will remember what all, as you describe them, it means that you, just as if you had done a graphic recording, and the way a graphic recording becomes essentially a, a, its own little memory palace for you, so does using this, this tool kit. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm so pleased mm-hmm. to, to hear you talk about it with such definition and clarity and strong memory of it. So it's, it's great. So you you are a certified facilitator. You also educate people on how to use it, or like you run trainings around this. I do not go to the level where I certify other people to to do the training. There are groups that do that, and I have thought about that. But I certainly have have run a lot of introductory sessions for people to get the taste and the flavor of it enough that they have an understanding of it, and potentially, if they want to use it, will either use it appropriately, I would hope, or go ahead and, and try and, if they want to actually facilitate, then they would go further and, and get fully uh, fully appropriately certified by the various master trainers around. If we need to summarize the, the power of LEGO Series Play, in some ways, I think you're less biased because you think with your hands and you don't overthink stuff before you do stuff but like how would you like summarize the difference when when using lego bricks to when you just doodle and just uh, work on a whiteboard drawing something well i would say this because the nature of using lego series play is that each individual who participates in a facilitated session and it can be a one-on-one i mean i can i've done i've done sessions with individuals coaching sessions for instance the point is that the person who is doing the building, they are creating their own uh, metaphors, their own, they are creating on the fly their own visual language uh, at that moment. So that's the first thing, is that it really helps greater ownership of the content that comes out from the sessions. Number two, it allows, because it's done in a playful way, it's a great stress (laughs) reliever it allows for a lot of uh, trust to be built. And I think that you've done team building work. You know that the foundation of any functional team starts from the layer of trust. Mm-hmm. And how do you create that? Um, and and everybody getting to own their own voice and be able to speak in turn and all of that does help build all of that. So that's a second feature that's very good about doing that methodology. And then as I say, One of the really good things about it is that it can support extremely complex, high-level system problems because you can use – you can keep extending this visual metaphor and attaching things to it, and it can grow very organically uh, as as what happens in in nature. You know, systems are very complex, Mm -hmm. which is why it's so hard for us to – to think these make you know very good decisions because there's so many factors that we have to take into account and and using this helps us see more clearly all of the factors that just would be overwhelming if we just tried to stick them in our head or sometimes even if we just try and get them all onto a single flat piece of paper uh, i i think there's a lot of strength in doing that kind of complex problem solving with with this three-dimensional mode if I think of a system, I also think of uh, a system dynamics, which is a the idea or that you have like feedback loops, who maybe positive feedback loops, where one one thing enforces a positive spin to something and be and becomes better. More sunlight makes you uh, feel happier. So and then 
more and more and it turns it up. But more sunlight in Australia can also have a negative inf- um, effect, right? Like you, it's too much sun and you might have a sunburn. So the question is like in a system thinking way, like there's a positive feedback loop, but in the same time, there's a negative feedback loop that is counterproductive to that. And the question always is then which feedback loop is stronger, the positive or the negative one? And I'm just thinking that through like, because I'm, I'm big on that when I think about business and teams and how I run effective projects. How can I do that with Lego bricks is my question. So I will tell you what <laughs> you <do>. Lego bricks. <laughs> That's sort of a leading question, isn't it? Uh, one, of the, one of the things that came out of doing Lego Serious Play was the conceptual idea that, again, if you approach using it uh, in a quote-unquote playful way, play is an activity with cause and effect, right? And again, if you're doing system work or strategic work, we would think of it as doing scenario planning, meaning it's, a, again, a, a tremendously safe way to, uh, to enact the what-ifs. Again, one of the problems I think that happens if you're doing s- scenario planning, even in a static, you know, a visual way, you still have the static thing of that the image is fixed, uh, fixed on the wall and you're, you're pretty much done with it. When you're dealing with these kind of objects, right, this three-dimensional object play, you can, you can run a scenario where you say, well, we're going to keep adding sunlight. We're going to keep adding sunlight. What's the effect of the sunlight going to be? And in a playful way, you would act out with these objects that you've created and and make the changes right so you would make the loop happen and you might pull off if you had created a landscape uh with uh, plants and trees and so on and so forth um you might say well you know by day five we have to take off all of the plants and everything because the sun has completely dried out everything and so we've we've done it as i say in a safe playful way we've actually played through a scenario Mm-hmm. Uh, and then and then we say, well, OK, that's that's one possible thing that could happen. Let's do a reset and go back. And now we're going to play again and change up some variables. So so that is another functional aspect of of how you would use these three dimensional objects to do planning in a strategic planning in a in a deeper way. Yeah, like best case and worst case planning like you play that through. Right, in exactly. Yeah. As I say, you yeah. would in there. You use the yes. keyword. You would play it through. Yes. Yeah. This is the serious play. When, when uh, I'm always like big on a timeline thing. Like, how long have you been doing this? And like the other question I have is, if you look back to your last month, like or last week, like how do you bring all those amazing skills together today? Like you, are, you have an education as a singer, as an opera singer, you, comp- you are a composer. Then on the other side, the graphic design world, the marketing side that you worked in. How does all those bricks like today click together or how, what you made out of it? Like what are you doing today for your clients? Um, well, clients range in asking different things of me. I'm working on a very long-term contract with a client that is specifically running the design thinking educational piece uh, within an innovation cell in a very, very, very large um, institutional environment. So my job has two sides to it. On the one side, Um, I will do what would be called, let's say, user experience work, where we're looking to investigate where are opportunities that we could do, uh, apply design thinking to to improve a process. And I realize I'm speaking very generally uh, because partly for your audience and also partly to respect the non-disclosure agreement with my client. But the point being that on one side, I'm functioning to use all of these skills to go back in and say, how might we? You know, the famous design thinking question, how might we? So uh, there are one, two, three, four, there are actually four active projects that I'm involved with where I'm wearing that design thinking hat as a practitioner. Then on the other side, I'm also working on a program to actually teach design thinking methodology to instructors mm-hmm. who are engaged. Uh, this is a, a learning, a training skills program environment. And so uh, there are multiple courses and part of the mandate for this innovation cell is to find inroads to be able to create innovation within the coursework. And so what we what has been determined is that when you have 
600 plus instructors teaching a variety of courses, the instructors themselves have on the ground experience teaching the courses. So what can they bring, you know, what can they bring to say, hey, it might help if we did this or here's a, you know, in other words, using the design research kind of aspect. So I'm developing a program to actually give the instructors knowledge on how to bring forth information so that we can we can cook up more more innovative ideas to improve the program. So that's that's one particular client that I'm that I'm working with that mm-hmm. I think sort of summarizes it. Mm-hmm. But I will I will tell you that I have had clients where I simply do nothing more than on the one hand do graphic recording and um, I feel like it's my job to apply all of the visual communication background that I learned to make these graphic recordings work in the moment to be both instructive for the audience and help serve as prompts uh, for the person who's speaking to help them uncover uh, more of what they're trying to do. And that's sort of the quick and dirty of, of why I still feel like I apply a lot of skills when I'm even doing something as we'll call it passive as graphic recording. I think there's a strong component of bringing everything to the table. Absolutely, yes. Might stop you for a second, and I have a couple of questions. Try to answer as quick as possible, if you like. Let's do a test question. Your favorite color? Blue. If you would be an animal, which one? Rhinoceros. (laughs) You have so many awesome professions that you bring together. If you pick another one, which one would you like to do next? I want to be a performer who does, um, who uses silks like an acrobat. Uh huh. What are you not very good at? What I'm not very good at? Time management. One thing on your bucket list you still want to learn? Um, a few more languages. Cool. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Um, that the internet is going to be replaced with some form of blockchain technology. Okay. That's a podcast in itself. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, <laughs> and I know exactly what you did mean. Did I surprise you yeah. with that one? No, it's really cool. Yes, you did. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? You get to hang out with Carl Jung. <laughs> okay. Going from here to the future. Like, I know you, you have, uh, you're still working, I think, for the IFP, right? Or you have worked for, at the CTO for them? I was on the board of the IFEP. I am no longer at this point. All right. Maybe we talk a bit about the work at the IFEP. I was on the IFEP board from 2012 to 2016, maybe 17. I joined specifically to function as the chief technology officer. My concern was that our communication capabilities as an organization needed to be strengthened, and that meant uh, a better understanding and handle on, on using technology. And that's what I attempted to do. Very nice. If you look for projects for the future, what thing is something that you would like to explore or what you're working on out of your work? Any Anything you would like to, to share about this? Yes, I'm really, really interested in exploring the uh, open source augmented reality cloud and creating the ability for us, everybody, to to do this type of visual thinking communication, utilizing virtual reality and augmented reality. So for those who don't know what that is already, it is basically when I can look at my iPhone and put the IKEA table in a room and it's automatically placed on the floor there. And you can see how it would look like in your flat, right? This is like the The first use case I found when I was looking at a new table. But what is the open cloud means there? What is it? There is a startup, which I have joined, and the idea is to create essentially, much like we have, you know, uh, an open internet, to create an um, augmented reality environment, which would be open source and available to all. So I'll jump to the chase One of the most exciting things that I've also seen is what's being called the spatial Wikipedia. So imagine the ability for everywhere you go, (laughs) 
in the world, you can hold up your phone or hold or put on special glasses or something, and and the equivalent of the Wikipedia is 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 right there in front of you with images and visual things, text and words to be able to. To me, it's the extension of the memory palace. You know, the one of the greatest conceptual things that happened in how people are able to think better. And communicate better is this idea of using visual thinking this way. And so I'm very excited about seeing that happen. So that means like you walk down the street and you see all signs that are like Wikipedia. This building is like the Empire State Building and you see all the details when it's built. And then you walk left and see the next train station is 400 meters away. That's all like brought into the real, into what you can see. Right. So open source means like you you build uh, basically like the Google Maps of that or the Street View in in some ways that's uh, virtual reality, and you see all the details that it gets provided to you. So is it like a big database of with GPS coordinates? That's like this is like the visual uh, information for or the, the 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 information of this building or this thing that you have in front of you. Yeah, that's that's part of the conceptual framework of this spatial Wikipedia, yes. And again, that the Wikipedia idea, meaning also that it's it's open for people to contribute and edit and build and enrich uh, the information that's available to all of us. These are things that have come into my, they're not the day-to-day -day tasks that I'm working on, <laughs> but I'm fascinated by the potential of this for all of us on a big scale. Yeah, absolutely. And try to don't miss out anything about your work. And is there anything you would like to share? My immediate process, you know, you're talking about the work history and, and, and trajectory. And, and I'm at a point where I believe that there is so much knowledge and guidance that I would like to offer to others I'm working on very actively turning my work efforts to being more of a teacher, trainer, mentor, guide, so on and so forth. I think there's a lot I've assimilated in my work history and in my life, and I would like to find a way to uh, – I'm working on actively producing materials and content and – putting the time into being available for others to, you know, for me to be able to teach and train and, 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 and mentor and coach. So that's, that's sort of putting the cap on my work experience with where I am in, in, in my, in my life. And based on all the things you, you have under your belt, like when, like this is, this sounds like a very interesting training or format where, where you bring a lot together. Do you have a, do you have something released already that we can check out or, The, the game plan is probably it'll be over the next six months, meaning that in the beginning of 2019, there will be online coursework. I believe I will potentially be working with uh, there's one university that's in, in Europe that I've, I've spoken with them about because they're a very forward thinking teaching institution and they're looking to develop skills for people to walk into a world where you're going to need a whole different kind of skills beside anything you learn by rote. Yeah. How do you become a lifelong learner? And that's, that's the kind of thing I think is really relevant and important. You know, I'm, I'm concerned about the future of work for, for myself, uh, of course. And, you know, I'm, I'm in sort of a, what people would call, what is it? The third stage of work life. And so I'm, I'm concerned with how do I develop that? And I am a lifelong learner. And so how do I, help other people to be ready and be prepared to take on and learn new skills in the future. And I think all of these tools that I use, the visual thinking, the design thinking, the specific skills, I think that that helps us build that. And I want to, I want to get that out there. Yes, absolutely. Like as I'm a, a father of, of a little boy, but also I have a, a stepdaughter, she's 12 now. I'm, I'm feel like she, Well, it was true for me as well. You don't get the skill really you need for life in school. So most things I, I, I learned in my life, I have taught myself or found someone who knew how to do it and learned from them. And 
I think this is this is um, like the lifelong learner is it really resonates with me, and I'm wondering like, give me a technique that I can tell Elena next week of how to learn and and why it's important to be a lifelong learner. If you have anything there uh, for me as a father, I'm more than happy to listen to you. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I, I've done a, I've done a program for gosh ten ten years or more. And, and it's this very simple thing I, I call five diagrams in 15 minutes. And it's about visual problem solving. And, and, and I just show five different diagrams, which are so inherently natural to our way of thinking that we can apply them to problem solving. And that alone, you know, the, one of the first things that we have to do as people, as human beings, is we have to solve We have to make decisions, right? How do we make good decisions? How do we how do we think slow? And, and and that's something you're going to apply your entire life, including even you know learning. You know how do you pick and choose? So as I say, for for a bad time manager, it's very important for me to be able to make good decisions. So in these five diagrams, right, they're very simple and they're very basic and they're very fundamental. And I really believe that even kids can figure them out because that's how we see them visually. They just make sense when we see them. Um, so I'd say, you know, they don't have to be my five diagrams, but just, just starting to, starting to put visuals on the world wall and, and show how relationships work, uh, between things, um, you know, make, make lists and, 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 you know, to show what's important, um, you know, pros and cons lists are, are, are simple things. Um, you know, I didn't want to go into a whole big discussion about the particular diagrams and so on and so forth, because we're really just on a, a audio, um, and it does help to see them. But, As I say, I think that I think that that's the kind of thing. Just uh, and it sounds so awful to say, "Oh, learn how to diagram." But I, I mean, learn how to use pencil and paper to get your thinking out there. You know, mm -hmm. I guess that's the simplest way to start, even with just raw doodling, mm -hmm. uh, without it being specific. Just uh, the very fact that we, again, think with our hands and drawing is a you know, it's a hand hand done activity. Mm -hmm. So Dean, when we when I listen to you now, you you have all the different skills like uh, kinesthetic learning with Lego, serious play, and design thinking. But I think design thinking really became over the last uh, years uh, like a, a bit of a buzzword. And I always wonder because we had a couple of people who are trainers for design thinking, and those uh, like on the show and. Uh, I really like to explore this deeper. What does design thinking means for you, or what's important in there in the world of design thinking? I think it's really important to be clear about saying that there are a lot of definitions. They're very soft mm -hmm. definitions about design thinking. So I want to preface that by saying I come from it from my own biases and experience, and so on and so forth. And I also want to say that I was trained in a variety of very specific methods that were called or are called design thinking. So there is the double diamond method. There is the IDEO method. There is the D school. There is one that I was learned that I was taught by SAP. And there is actually as a member, I'm on, on the faculty of the American Management Association. There is a 10 step design thinking process, uh, which is, which is the coursework, uh, that I was teaching. So I, I want to differentiate a little bit between there are specific methods that are called design thinking processes or methods, but I think that there's something larger about the idea behind design thinking. And that is, comes out of this interest and desire to respond to the needs of human beings, mm -hmm. which is human centered design, right? HCD. My belief is that the more that we have the ability to connect with individuals and the more that we have the two-way connection with individuals, you know, two-way communication, and the more that we have the bandwidth and the ability to have a very rich level of communication with people, the more there is the need to uh, satisfy 
the needs, desires, and wants of people, you know, both at the individual level and then in the larger scale level, right, which is what we would call social good. And so I think design thinking sprung up out of this fact that we that we can no longer just churn out stuff, you know, in a consumerism, uh, consumer driven way. We could not just churn out products and services and lie back and expect that, uh, that people would just absorb them and take them and use them or not. We have to do more of responding because people are able to be more finicky and picky and respond and say, no, we don't want this or no, we won't use it. So, I think that's number one why there is this rise in in interest in design mm-hmm. thinking and trying to implement it in many, many different ways. The thing I wanted to say that I think is important for anybody who's interested in implementing or using design thinking is that it takes courage. <laughs> <laughs> and this is this is a factor. It's just like, you know, uh, I look at business models that I work with all the time that I've been using for years, and I'm moving more and more into this idea that there is a component missing of lifelong learning or continuous education. So <laughs> I'll say the same thing with design thinking, that for the person who is going to engage in being a quote-unquote design thinker also has to reach inside themselves and say – Am I courageous enough to completely go through this entire process to be able to actually listen carefully and really uh, understand uh, the needs, desires, wishes, and responses from the person who I'm designing for? So that's that's sort of an aspect that I don't think is covered in, in all these variety of design thinking courses is that if you're going to actually engage in doing design thinking, then you have to know yourself quite well and you have to be uh, strong and bold to work through the process and take the failures. So I, I say be brave and iterate. <laughs> I think that's 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 kind of the catchphrase that I've been I've been trying to implement when I when I teach design thinking. I know pretty exactly what you mean because one thing I I've participated in in the past was the service design jam in Melbourne well it was worldwide and so for me as like an agile coach who works in a team in a, somewhere hidden in a in a room that was a complete new experience because we went out and tested the idea on the street after half an hour or something And we went back and, and built a different prototype, came back onto the street and tested again. And in the afternoon, we had our final. Um, so for me, it took a lot of courage to, to speak to strangers on the street, right, who are busy. And we were looking for a particular panel like of, of people. So there's this thing of, okay, I'm, I'm not a threat to you yeah like have do you have a minute to speak to him? yes exactly it, it's it's amazing and I've, i've done this in schools uh you know i, I was working with the uh, rutgers i had a, a user experience uh mini masters program and you know everybody was very happy sitting in the room and c- cooking up these ideas and to go out as you say to go out into the street and say i want to present this to you and i you know i'm not invested either way just tell me what you think that takes a lot of courage yes it really does yes Yeah. And then in, in, in the end, like we played out our final in, in a, like a improv theater. And I played a little boy who gets this like uh, product every week, which was because it was a subscription service for a new product every week that we invented. And like standing in front of 80 people actually got recorded. It was like, I was, it was, it was fun, but I was uh, happy when it was over <laughs> to play that uh, on the, on the stage. Yeah. Be brave and iterate. <laughs> well, now you see how I bring all the performance and everything yes. else, you know, all of that performance and singing and drawing and, and all of it, it all comes together when you're dealing with the, what become could become life and death matters. You know, it may be a simple product off the shelf, but it may be, it may be saving 10 steps in getting through a hallway in an, uh, to get to an operating room. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things that can happen when you're really engaged with what design thinking can do. Yeah, nice. I really appreciated your time. It was amazing. I think that we should take the time and listen because we, yeah, we rush, at least in where I work, we rush a lot, like in IT. Dean, I just want to say thank you for your time and, and wish you an awesome afternoon. What time is it now in New York? 
It is 4.17 in the afternoon here. So time for a coffee or a tea. Yes, Perfect. exactly. <laughs> Depending on your national preference, it is time for a beverage and a light snack. <laughs> All right. Have an awesome afternoon and speak to you soon. I am so grateful for your invitation and thank you for your careful listening. So <laughs> thanks again for all. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Dean and me. And if you found it useful, then please share it with your friends. Hop over on iTunes, maybe give us a star rating, leave us a comment. And if you think I have an idea what we could do differently, then please write us an email. We will get back to you. That's a promise. All right, then have an awesome day and see you next time.